0: Uh, Last week, we started a new sermon series that we're calling Jesus on Church. And specifically what we're doing together is we're looking at what Jesus himself said about his uh, community, his gathering, and looking at that from the book of Matthew. So if you have a Bible, please turn with me to Matthew 16. And if you don't have one, there should be a Bible underneath the chair in front of you. You're welcome to take that home with you and uh, keep it. Continue reading with us. Uh, Matthew 16 is where we'll be today. There are uh, things in life that, activities we go to, and uh, things we put in our bodies that come with warning labels. Can you think of the last one that you saw? This is rhetorical. The last warning label you saw. The ones that always crack me up are things like uh, last year I was in an airport outside of the country. And literally, one of those duty-free shops had a huge carton of cigarettes. It wasn't in English, but then it had a sticker on it that said, Warning, this will kill you. And uh, I took a picture of it, and some guard came and made me take it off my phone because I wanted to show it to you. I just thought it was so funny. Uh, Enjoy these if you want. Look forward to dying. Um, There are things in life that have warning labels. This sermon has a warning label, and the warning label says, warning, this requires thinking. This is not a simple sermon about a simple passage today. We're going to take what is a very famous text, and yet it includes what I think is probably the most um, misunderstood and misused and ignored verse in the whole Bible about the church. And so this is going to require some thinking on your part. But I hope that it will be an encouragement uh, to you. Um, And if we don't solve everything in the passage today for you, uh, or if we raise new questions that you've never had before, I hope you'll work those out in uh, friendships, uh, relationships, your gospel communities, Ask an Elder. We'd love to talk to you more uh, about it. Last week, together, we looked at Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, as He described what His people look like. He described a delightful people. Today, we're going to jump all the way to Matthew 16. But before we look at the text, if you'll allow me just a few minutes of latitude, I want to try to describe quickly for you what we've skipped over, because that context will be important for the passage that we read today. It's clear from Matthew 5, 6, and 7 that we looked at together last week that Jesus didn't particularly like many of the religious people of his day. The the people that everybody else looked at and thought of as they're right with God, they're doing the right things, I can't be like them, but gosh, I wish I could. Those folks, Jesus didn't care for. You see, his view is that right Behavior must be coupled with right motive. And in Jesus' day, a lot of religious people did good things, but they did them with hearts that were far from God. They did them to be thought of in particular ways. And Jesus wasn't into that. And so Jesus came along and he began saying things like, you've got to be given my righteousness. Righteousness if you have any hope at all of being made right with God. Your your behavior has to flow from an identity, a, a new heart, a new cleansed heart that I can give you. And so as we work our way from Matthew 7 through 16, there's a lot of mystery around Jesus because nobody else was saying anything like that. They were saying, you do... you." You do these things, follow these rules, measure up, follow the law, and you will be right with God. Jesus came along and said, yeah, you're not going to be able to follow the law. You've already failed, but I will follow the law on your behalf and give you right standing with me. Nobody else was saying that. And so there was lots of confusion about Jesus. Now, what in the beginning of Matthew caused just tiny sparks of uh, difficulty between Jesus and the Pharisees, as we move our way through the book, becomes an explosion of conflict. In fact, this is what ends up getting him killed. So a couple examples of this, Jesus at one place calls religious phonies hypocrites, and he tells them to repent. Now, If you're doing things in order to be thought of as good and moral and upstanding, then being called out in public probably isn't something you're going to be very happy about, right? Another thing that really bothered the Pharisees and the scribes is that over time, the crowds began shifting their attention from the Pharisees and scribes and religious leaders over to Jesus. And again, if your behavior is about what other people think about you and your crowd's getting smaller, then you're not going to like Jesus very much. They couldn't stand Jesus because he had real authority, because he really helped people, because he was breaking what they thought God expected. And so these little confrontations began popping up everywhere you look. Here's one example in Matthew chapter 9. It'll be on the screens. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Those of you not from the United States, we have uh, something called the IRS. And the IRS is the government organization that tells us how much we owe in our taxes. So all the Americans in the room said, "Uh." (laughs) what you feel about the IRS is nothing compared to what a Jew in the first century thought about the tax collectors. The tax collectors were Jewish sellouts. These were people who were giving their lives to taking taxes from the Jewish people in order to pass it on to Rome. Now what makes it even worse is the way you made money as a tax collector is you added to the top. So let's say you you owed $100. Well, Matthew, the tax collector, would say, "Uh, according to my calculations, you actually owe 150. And he'd pocket that 50 and pass on the other 100 to Rome. So these were the ultimate sellouts. Jesus went up to one of them, Matthew, the man who's name is on the book we're reading, and said, hey, you, scum of the earth, follow me. Verse 10, and as Jesus reclined at the table, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when his disciples saw this, they said to the disciples, why does, what, I'm sorry, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to the disciples, why does your teacher eat? with tax collectors and sinners. But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what it means, I desire mercy but not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but the sinner. These verses show the shocking rescue of Matthew out of a life of sin to a place of right standing with God. That's what Jesus came to do. He came to offer himself to those who knew they were beyond the bounds of rightness with God. Jesus came for the outcast, the broken, those who knew they didn't measure up. Jesus didn't come and wasn't particularly concerned with. The religious, arrogant people who thought that they were already good with God. Today we might say, Jesus came for prostitutes, meth addicts, child molesters, Republicans. That was a joke. In the pages of your Bible, between Matthew 8 and Matthew 16. Jesus travels to village after village after village, preaching this gospel of scandalous grace, inviting people who had lost hope to come into the kingdom of God. And all the while, the religious people are getting angrier and angrier. You know what it feels like in late April into May, when you know what's coming. That's what the mood is like through Matthew. The, the temperature just gets hotter and hotter and hotter and hotter. In Matthew 12, verse 14, it says, the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. So if we put all this together, You've got angry religious leaders. You've got Jesus teaching and healing. You've got the Jewish people getting more and more amped, excited, expectant. And you've got Jesus calling the Pharisees things like sons of Satan. In this context, there was massive confusion. About who is Jesus? What is he here for? Is his message true? And who are God's people really? If you've ever wondered if Jesus is all that big of a deal, or if church is worth your time, or what we're here for, or if the Bible's actually true, and Matthew 16 is an incredibly important passage. And God, in His kindness, has brought you here today. With that, by way of introduction, would you look at Matthew 16, verse 13, as Lindsay, one of our college students, comes to read for us 13 through 20. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea of Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon bar for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I wonder when you think of church, what do you think of? Is it a building that comes to mind? And if that's what comes to mind, do you think about things like what color are the walls? Today what we want to do is look beyond the color of the walls to what's behind that sheetrock. Let's look at the framing of the building. And let's look at, have, has that framing been nailed down appropriately into the foundation? And is that foundation solid and secure? You know, when you build a building, you've got to get a permit, and they come back again and again and again and again before they'll give you that permit. Some of you have been through this process. The A city has rules that you must follow. And for the most part, those rules are designed for our protection. And so the city has an authority to say, this building is now ready to be inhabited. Church, we're going to look today at a passage that tells us, here's the permit needed for the church. Here's not the color of the walls but rather what the walls are made of and what the foundation consists of. And who actually is in charge of doing that work? Is it the city planner? Is it the pastor? Is it the elders? Is it the staff? As we think about these things, we're going to look at this passage and try to answer three questions. Number one, who is Jesus? That's, of course, the central issue in this text. Second, we're going to consider a related topic. That is, who are we? And finally, we'll look together at who is the church. The first, who is Jesus? Verse 13, we see the question asked incredibly clear. Jesus says, who do people say I am? Now, that's not people as opposed to chickens and dogs, but rather, who Come on, I thought that was funny. That's, what, what do the crowds say? As, as we're going from city to city, village to village, and you hear people talking about me, what is it that you hear them saying? See, there was a buzz about Jesus all over the place. And Jesus wanted to know, what do people think about him? Now, the responses, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, are, are strange. The disciples responded that some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah. Some say Jeremiah. Others say he's one of the prophets. Well, friends, these are a list, a bunch of people from the Old Testament time period who were significant in what God had been doing. The first two-thirds of your Bible is called the Old Testament, and from Genesis to Malachi, these books are filled with dozens and dozens, even probably hundreds of promises about a prophet, a king, a priest, a leader, a deliverer, whom God would send to rescue His people. One example of a promise like this comes from Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. It says, The Lord your God will raise up from you a prophet, Like me, from your brothers, it is to him you shall listen. And so as people saw Jesus doing things they hadn't seen anybody else doing, teaching with a persuasive power that they hadn't seen before, they began asking, is this perhaps that prophet, that one promised all the way back in Deuteronomy? Is he the one we've been longing for? Is he finally here? There was speculation about Jesus, but certainly no certainty among the crowd. Ideas were swirling around, but no broad consensus was developing. In many ways, it was probably something like this. The average person thought Jesus was a good guy. They thought he taught incredibly interesting things. They wanted to get near him because of what he could do for them. They liked him, but in general, they misunderstood who he was. That sounds strangely familiar, doesn't it? Things haven't changed all that much. People still like things Jesus said. They like his message of love and hope and mercy. They want to buddy up to him when they need something from him. But in general, there's still a lot of confusion about Jesus. I Googled this week the question, who is Jesus? Got back a stunning 796 million hits. Just for kicks, I also Googled, who is Chuck? Didn't get near as many hits. (laughs) But friends, seriously, this is life's supreme question. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? There's nothing more important than that. In verse 15, Jesus amps things up a bit. Jesus was a brilliant teacher. He first asked, what do, what do the crowds say? But then he looks at his disciples, the the 12 there right with him. I imagine his eyes shifting to each one. He says, you, who do you say I am? That's a better question. You see, when it comes to determining who you believe Jesus is, it's not enough to settle for what other people think. Teachers, parents, pastors, friends, authors, YouTubers, these all might help, but at the end of the day, you must decide who you think Jesus is. Nobody can do that for you. It doesn't matter what kind of home you were born in or what kind of school you're going to or went to or what kind of job you have. Friends, you must answer the question for yourself, who is Jesus? Now don't misunderstand me. It's not because you have any ability at all to cause Jesus to be something other than he is. No, no. He's in the position of authority. You're not. But, you see, your rejection or reception of Jesus is something only you can do. You are accountable before God as an individual. And what you do with Jesus determines everything. That's what makes this question so important. No one gets into the kingdom of God or stays in the kingdom of God because they're they're close to someone else who is. It's not a by proxy kind of group. Every individual must decide for themselves who is Jesus. When the crowds are gone, when your Twitter's down, when there's no more posting on Instagram and you can't rely on what anybody else says, who do you say Jesus is? Who is he? There is nothing more important you will ever consider than that question. So Jesus, in his grace and mercy, comes to his disciples and says, who do you say I am? I wonder, have you given that question the consideration it deserves? I don't mean a flippant, uneducated, looking inside, how do I feel about Jesus kind of question. I mean, looking at the data. What do Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the expert, eyewitness, historically reliable confessors of Christ, who do they say Jesus is? Look at verse 16, if you would. Simon Peter replied, most likely on behalf of all the disciples. He was the one in the group. You know how these folks are. Speak up for everybody. Simon Peter replied, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Let's take a couple of minutes to look at both halves of Peter's reply. First, he said, you're the Christ. If you've been around church at all, you've no doubt heard Jesus called Christ or Jesus Christ. Technically speaking, originally, this wasn't Jesus' name. Rather, it's a title. It's a designation about his work and his person. Christ means Messiah or deliverer or king of Israel. Peter's saying, Jesus, you are, in fact, that one all those dozens and hundreds of promises in the Old Testament are about this is the moment. He's here. Jesus, you're the Christ. You are the one upon whom our hopes and dreams and longings can only fall and your shoulders can take the weight. You're the Christ. That's what he's saying. You're the promised rescuer. Now, the second half, you are the son of the living God. I love that Peter included the word living in response to who Jesus is. He's he's saying, you're the the king. You're the living king. The, The power of that isn't readily available to us unless you've done some homework on this passage. If you look back earlier in the text, you'll see that this took place at a place called Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was very famous in its day. It lies about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee at one of the main tributaries for uh, the Jordan River. The Caesarea Philippi has a long, long, long history of idolatry. It's a place you can still go today. The first god, idol, that was known to be worshipped there with great intensity was one of the gods the Jews kept getting in trouble for following. He was a guy named Baal. He was originally a Syrian god who had spread from Syria over into this part of the nation of Israel. As people traveled, they brought their gods with them. And after those people were conquered and the next group of people came in, they were the Greeks, and they worshipped a god called Ban. It's spelled with a P, P-A-N. You've probably seen pictures of him. He's a half goat, half man. Really disgusting. Really disgusting. Why would you worship a half-goat, half-man? I mean, at least he could be attractive. Half-goat, half-man is pretty darn weird. When the Greeks were conquered, the Romans came in. And the Romans set up this city as a key place of worshiping the Caesar. The Caesar thought of himself as the son of God. Are the bells starting to go off? Friends, Jesus had no reason to go up this far out of the way. There, there were no Jews up there. He's pressing the mission up into the Gentile area, and he's doing so in order to have this conversation at this place. This was a spot no God-fearing, God-loving person would go. And Jesus went there. He went there in the height of idolatry to say to his followers, I am the king, I am the Messiah. And Peter's response is, I see it. You are who you say you are. You're not like any of the other gods here. But El, he's dead. Ban, he's disgusting and he's dead too. And Caesar's just wrong. He's not the son of God. He's going to die just like every other human being. You are the living God. Isn't that cool? And he says, Jesus, you have a unique relationship with the Father. You You are connected to him spiritually and physically, emotionally. Jesus, you are exceptional. There's nobody else like you. In the Old Testament, the word son is often used to describe the anointed king and the special relationship he had with God. It's also used to describe all the people of God, Israel, as the son of God. So if we take these ideas and weld them together, what we have is Peter's confession that, Jesus, you are unlike anyone else. You have a unique, special relationship with the Father. And you've come to do what all of us were supposed to do, obey your law. You are the living God. Friend, is that who you see Jesus to be? That is the only Jesus there is. That is the Jesus of the scriptures. You can try a different Jesus, but he's not real. He's like your make-pretend friend you had when you were a kid. This is the biblical Jesus. Now, fascinatingly, this brings us to our second question in a rather unlikely way. That question was, who are we? Friend, if you set out to discover who you are and you start with yourself, you will never find a sufficient answer. You will perpetually forever be disappointed. You see, you and I are image bearers. We're made in the image of God. And as such, we are designed to be mirrors of sorts. If you hold up a mirror to a mirror, what are you going to see? Nothing. It's just mirrors looking at each other doesn't look like anything. Friends, as human beings, we have infinite value and worth. Irrespective of our beliefs, our intelligence levels, how much money we have, our relative attractiveness compared to others, we're made in the image of God. That means we're made to mirror something of who God is. Isn't that an incredible? This is what makes things like um, abortion, murder, or injustice so incredibly evil. Because human beings are made to represent, to image God. So if you want to know who you are, don't look within. That's not what you were made for. You were designed to reflect someone else. You're designed to reflect God. Now what does this have to do with Peter? Well, look at verse 17. Jesus answered, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. Jesus' response runs exactly parallel to Peter's response. Peter said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus' response is, blessed are you. Bar means son of. Simon was Peter's original Aramaic name. And so he's saying, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. You are Peter. The power of this, I'm afraid, is largely missed by us. See, Peter could only have the identity he was designed to have once he knew who Jesus was. Yeah, he'd been a a fisherman, and he was the son of somebody, and he was from a particular place. I imagine he had lots of acquaintances and friends. He was a very courageous, extroverted, outspoken guy. He's the kind of guy that you're tired of after you've been around but you want to go back for more. But none of those things amounted to to Simon Peter having an identity that mattered. He needed to be given one. The only way that happens is if we make right confession of Christ. And then the image of God is remade, renewed in us, that we might be able to actually live the life we were designed to live. Brothers and sisters, the only way we ever know ourselves is to first know God. If we confess that Jesus is the Christ, then literally everything else in our lives can go south. And we will still be blessed. That was the word Jesus started with. Blessed are you. Not because of Peter's personality not because of where he was from, not because of his intelligence, simply, solely, completely because of what God declared was true about him. Friends, the majority of the day, you and I climb on a hamster wheel only to run and exhaust ourselves again and again and again seeking identity from the things of the world. And it does not work. It'll keep you busy. It'll exhaust you. You might feel like you're getting somewhere, but it doesn't work. Jesus is the only person who can make people right with God, rescue us off that wheel, get us out of slavery to sin and place us into a right standing with God and therefore with a knowledge and a rest in who we are. Only Jesus is the deliverer of the damned. And that running on the hamster wheel is in fact damning because in so doing we are making ourselves God. Now why can we be so sure of having this The seat, if you will, of sitting down in the blessings of God. Well, Jesus said, it's because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but by my Father who is in heaven. If you're here today and you're not sure about Jesus, gosh, are we glad you're here. My intent this morning is not to ask you, how do you feel about Jesus? Friends, Christianity is not primarily about your feelings. It's about what's true or not true. And when we believe what's true, invariably, inevitably, and certainly to different degrees, our feelings follow. And so our question to you is, what do you believe about Jesus? What do you think? What do you know thus far to be true? Certainly, if you're not sure, our encouragement to you would be to pick up a Bible, and to begin reading, to make friends with other Christians, to ask every question you can possibly ask, to check out the history, to look at other religions, to go at this like you've never gone at anything before. However, The most important thing you need to do is to say, God, if you're true, if you're real, if Jesus is the person he claims to be, would you help me to see it and believe it? Because I don't. Friends, Jesus is saying here, Peter, the only way you've come to the point of making this right confession about Christ is because God took the blinders off. You are able to see me, savor me, enjoy me, trust me, believe in me. Not, Peter, because you're so great or you're smarter than any of the rest or you figured it out first. No. But because the Father in all his graciousness removed your ignorance that you might see God for who he is. See, that's the only hope anybody has. So do your searching, but do so with the reality that God's got to show me. Friends, we are born morally and spiritually blind. God must remove the blinders. Now, what in the world does this have to do with the church? Well, think of church again, not not the colors on the wall, but what's inside of it? What's the structure? What makes the body the body? Verse 18 says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, Now, here's the verse I mentioned, one of the most important verses in the entire Bible about the church, almost completely misunderstood by the majority of us in the room. By by misunderstood, I mean ignored. It's importance misunderstood. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. The Greek text, the emphasis is actually whatever you bind on earth is already bound and will be bound in heaven. It's speaking of something that happened in the past with its effects continuing on in the present. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So, what is the church? Well, he just told us. The fact that we are so unfamiliar with this passage is much to our detriment for being a healthy church, and it's much to the detriment of the community we live in. You see, today it's common for especially church leaders to think and say things like, well, you've got to belong before you believe. Or the church needs to look like the world. So we want the music to sound just like it. We want the the videos to be just as flashy. We want the speeches to be just like a TED Talk. We want our behavior to not in any way be off-putting. None of those things Jesus would agree with. Jesus, though, instead is saying, no, there's got to be a hard, fast, clear, definitive line between the church and the world. Brothers and sisters, the church is not a building or a denomination. It's not a program or a personality. It's not a budget or a pastor. It's not a place, it's a people. But it's not just any people. It's certain people doing certain things. Two people who get together at Starbucks and say they're Christians and read their Bible and talk a little bit and then go on their way and don't do anything else is not a church. It's easier than this. There's less heartache but it's not a church. Jesus is defining for us what happens that makes a church a church. He's commissioning the church to do certain things. He's saying the church is the people who make the right confession about Jesus. He's saying the church is made up of people who recognize Jesus as king and son of the living God. And who submit themselves to Him. The word church means assembly. So the church is an assembly of Christians who are saved by Jesus, recognizing other people who have been saved by Jesus, and helping each other in an ongoing way to submit ourselves to Him. Because there's gonna be days you wake up on the wrong side of the bed and say, I don't want Jesus today, I want Chuck. And what do you need in order not to live like that? You need brothers and sisters helping you grow. When we know who God is and we know of our identity in him, then we're able to know and help each other follow Christ. Let me say this in the least complicated way thus far. The church exists to help people arrive at an answer to life's most important question who is Jesus. The church is here to proclaim the gospel, to recognize people who respond, to invite them in through baptism, and then to help them grow. This is what church is. Now that can be 10, 12, 15 people at Starbucks if that's what they're doing or it can be several hundred at 13th and Mill. Friends, anyone who makes Peter's confession, Jesus is Christ. Anyone who says that, and the time from when they confess that the first time until today, there are pieces, there's evidence, there's fruit of growth. Not perfection, but growth. Those people, ought to join a local body. And those people, okay, now we're into the the wood framing, the foundation. Those people ought to say to that person who's saying, I love Jesus. Great. Which Jesus? Tell me about Jesus. And listen for a right confession of faith. And if they don't make a right confession of faith, The most hateful thing you can do is throw your arms around and say, welcome, brother or sister, because you're giving assurance of rightness with God that is not there. Instead, we ought to say, I'm so thrilled you're here. You're not ready to join this church because you don't have a right confession about Christ. Could we get together and talk more about that? And would you come along with me on Sunday morning? Friends, we tend to think of spiritual authority as me and Jesus, and nobody else has any part in that whatsoever. That is American spirituality. That's not biblical Christianity. Yes, we don't get right with God because of what anyone else says or does. But no, I ought not look at my own authority for assurance. The local church exists to proclaim who Jesus is by sharing the gospel, by praying God would convict people of sin, by showing the gospel's effects in how we live. The church exists to listen for people who've trusted Christ and become Christians, who evidence that in baptism, and now want to partner together to grow up in Christ. This is what the church is for. Now, how do we see that? Don't worry, I'm not coming for you. Jesus said, "Let me, let me, let me give you a picture. What's a key for? Besides losing them, what's the key for?" Keys for locking and unlocking. That's the binding and loosening. It means open and shut. Jesus says, Church, Peter, everyone who confesses Christ and gathers together, what's the very essence of what you're to do? You're to open the door of heaven by proclaiming the gospel and inviting people in. And those who confess Christ you embrace them as a brother or sister in Christ. Tighter than bloodline is faith line. And those who come along and say, I love Jesus, but have no confession of faith or have a made up phony fake Jesus, lock the door. Not meaning don't let them into the church to listen, but make it clear to them they're not yet part of the kingdom of God. Don't be a lying church. That's what the keys are for. Friends, this is the essence of church. Now, did you know that this is the first time Jesus ever used the word church? This is the first time the word church occurs in the New Testament. There's only three times the word church happens in any of the Gospels. They're all in Matthew. And every time the word church is used, This is its context. Who's in, who's out. That line is supposed to be clear. Why? You and I have an unbelievable capacity for self-deception. And the world will be won for Christ, not by the church looking like the world, but by the church being distinct. Not holier-than-thou-better distinct broken, humble, repentant. This is what church is. Tonight in our members meeting, I'll spend a little bit of time talking about some of the practicalities of this, the implications of it. We're not doing everything as a church we ought to be. So We'll spend a little bit more time on that tonight. In closing, would you hear these words from Peter? Years later, Peter wrote this in the book of 1 Peter. As you come to him, the him is Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. But you, in the you is plural, you all, you-ins, as my grandma would say, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, now you've received mercy. The church is the people who receive mercy. And extend that mercy to others. Let's pray. Father, this is not an easy passage. I pray that even now as I'm praying, you would speak to each one here. Pray for first people who have not yet confessed Christ. God, give them eyes to see light a fire underneath them that they would seek the answer to the question, who is Jesus? I pray this would be a safe people for them to explore that question. Well, I pray for others who, are, who haven't responded to Christ but are ready that now they would make Peter's confession their own. And then they'd understand that to be a decision they made personally but one that must not stay private they tell others and get connected here or in some other church. Lord, I pray for those in the room who are genuine Christians but haven't made a, haven't given others the opportunity to hear their profession. They haven't joined the church. God, that's a perilous place to be. Pray you'd set it in their hearts. They decide today I'm going to make a commitment somewhere. God, our first concern is not, is that here? Finally, Lord, I pray for the members of Church on Mill that, Lord, you would help us by your grace through your spirit to get this issue right. And where we have taken church way, way, way too softly, easily, cavalierly, independently, please forgive us. In Jesus' name, amen.